Thank you for tuning in to our Restoration Life podcast. Don't forget to rate and review the message and share it out with your friends on social media. Can't wait for you to listen in next week. Good morning or good afternoon. Wow, good afternoon. I got to get used to that now. Good afternoon, everybody. How's everybody doing? Man, did we have a time of prayer and fasting here this past week. Incredible. Incredible. And so I I guess I've got everybody who doesn't care about the Rams game with us right now. Or the Detroit Lions. Are they playing today? Is that a 5.30? Who's going to win? Rams? Okay. (laughs) I'm about to start a fight right now in church. It's such an honor to have everybody with us. Man, we had two other great and really incredible services. But one of the things that I do want to encourage all the men to do, if you haven't done it already, is that you can go on our app and right in front, right right as the app opens, it's going to open to the Men's Transform Conference. And honestly, I'm stoked to have it hosted here at our house this year. It's going to be an incredible time. We've got Pastor John Morgan, who's going to kick it off. And then he's going to stay with us till Sunday. So he's going to kick it off on Thursday night, and then he's going to stay with us till Sunday. And then Anthony Fleming, which is the the author of the book and friend of ours uh, from Church Alive in New Jersey. His wife Miriam spoke at at Radiant, uh, I think it was two years ago. And um, so he's going to come, and he's going to speak at our church. He's spoken at our church before, but he's speaking on, on Thursday night and Saturday morning, no, sorry, Thursday night's John Morgan, Friday night's Anthony Fleming, and Saturday morning we're going to finish with Anthony Fleming. And then our men's restored ministry has um, a lot of uh, awesome things for the men's, for the after party of the conference. And uh, so we got the in and out truck here. There's going to be games and prizes. And I think we got um, uh, SoCal Locals, the cars, the car show is going to be here. A lot of awesome things are going to happen. So you don't want to miss out on that. But there is a cost to the conference because it costs us to fly in Anthony Fleming and John Morgan and to put them up and to have them come and speak. And we want to bless them as they do so. And so that's going to be an incredible time. And then don't forget that next Saturday for everybody who's in leadership, all the life group leaders, all the dream team leaders, all the executive team pastors, everyone that's in leadership at our church. um, I have a very uh, special friend of mine. His name is... John Cameron, and we're flying him in from Australia um, to be with us, and just a dynamic builder uh, of, of churches and an awesome speaker, and he's going to be with us. He's going to speak to our our uh, our dream team leaders and all of our leaders here on Saturday morning at 9.30 in the morning, and then on Sunday, he's speaking at all three services, and we're going to bleed him dry and keep him over to Man Up Monday on Monday night, and he's going to speak for our Man Up Monday, so you don't want to miss out. It's going to be an incredible time. Um, There's no cost um, to him speaking here on that Saturday or Monday night, but we just want to get all of our men here. How many know that our men are just crushing it already this year? Excited for our men's ministry. And, of course, the women, Radiant One Night is coming up. You guys are preparing for Radiant uh, Embers Conference. Good time. Um, If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Haggai. And we're going to be in the book of Haggai, chapter 2 in the Old Testament. And um, if I could just catch you up a little bit, we're in a new series that we've entitled Prepare the Way because uh, we believe that God is, is giving us a, a vision for this year to build a, a house for the next generation and the next generation after that. And it's found out of Haggai chapter 2 verse 9, scripture that really spoke to me about this year and that we're going to be building for legacy. Um, but I want to I just quickly catch you up on what we learned last week. Um, last week, we learned that the children of Israel were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And this is where the prophet Jeremiah prophesied um, in Jeremiah 29, uh, 11 through 14, when he spoke to the children of Israel that were in Babylonian captivity. Behold, I've got great plans for your life. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Plans not to harm you. Um, but if you pray to me and seek me with all your heart, I will hear from heaven. Um, and, and I'm going to give you everything that I promised you, and I'm going to return you back to the place from which I exiled you from. And the reason why the children of Israel were exiled into Babylonian captivity is because they began to serve other gods. 
And anytime we take our focus off of God and we focus on other things, whatever those things are, those things become other gods to us, believe it or not. And so, so God disciplines them and allows them to go into Babylonian captivity for about 70 years. And then just as Jeremiah prophesied, a king Cyrus out of Persia comes and he defeats the Babylonian Empire, which many of you know is in modern-day Iraq. And the children of Israel were released to go back to Israel to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's where Nehemiah comes in. Nehemiah was quickened by the Lord to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the ruined walls of Jerusalem. And while all that's happening, um, the children of Israel that have been released to go rebuild Jerusalem also have been commissioned to rebuild the temple of God where the presence of God and the sacrifices of God uh, would be held. But there was a, a remnant that were released from Babylonian captivity, about 50,000 of them. And so when they got to go back to Israel, they started to rebuild the temple. And as they started to rebuild the temple, um, they got their eyes off of God and they started getting their eyes back on themselves. And this is where you'll see in Haggai chapter 1, God uses the prophet Haggai to step in and rebuke the children of Israel for taking their eyes off of him and for putting their eyes back on themselves. And God speaks through the prophet Haggai in chapter 1. He says, consider your ways. While you're living in luxurious paneled homes and, and you're taking care of yourselves, my house lay in ruin. And so God rebukes them and he says, consider your ways. Because as much as you go out and plant, you'll never have enough. As much as you go out and toil, you'll never have enough. As much as you try to bring money into money bags, you'll never have enough. Because as long as I'm not first in your life, you'll always be reaching for what's never enough. That's what he told the children of Israel. And it's true for the people of God today. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, to seek me first and my kingdom and everything else will be added unto you. And so God disciplines them, but then releases them from the discipline. And so now in Ezra, the first chapters of Ezra, you can see the front story to the children of Israel rebuilding um, the house of the Lord, while in Haggai is the backstory of what's happening there, and God's rebuking the children of Israel, getting them back into line and encouraging them and saying, I'm not going to put you back into Babylonian captivity. I'm not going to let anybody overtake you anymore but you need to get your eyes off of yourselves and put your eyes back on me to prioritize me again in your life and so they do that and this is kind of where we take off uh where we, we where we take off this morning in this morning's message in Haggai chapter 2 verse 1 through 9 and so for those of you that were looking for exegesis here it is you went through chapter 1 of Haggai last year we're going through chapter 2 today and the week after. But I, I want you to uh, know that there are so many things that are in this story that we can learn from. And last week, what we learned from chapter one is that the enemy can discourage you to a point where you will talk yourself out of being obedient to God. Let me say it again. The enemy can discourage you with what you see in front of you or before you, or the things that you're hearing other people say, and it can discourage you to a point where you yourselves can talk yourself out of being obedient to God. And then focusing in on your personal pursuits, your personal preferences, what your heart's desires are, and God rebukes the children of Israel for thinking that way and says, get your eyes off yourselves Get your eyes off of your preferences and your opinions and put your eyes back on me. Go back to work. Build my house. And then you'll always have more than enough in your life. That's what he said to the children of Israel. After he rebukes them and then they correct their ways, that what ends up happening is God starts to encourage them and says, listen, you're, never, you're not going to go back to Babylonian captivity. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. And as long as you have me, you're always going to have victory. That's basically what God always says to the children of Israel. And how many would agree that he always says to us? Anytime that you and I get our eyes off of our, um, our gifting and our calling in Christ to fulfill the purpose that he has to fulfill through our lives and we put our eyes on ourselves, on our own personal desires, our own personal wants, what our preferences are. Whenever we take our eyes off of God 
and put our eyes on self first, then he's no longer God to us. Did you hear that? And so we need to put him back in his rightful place as the King of Kings, come on, and the Lord of Lords. And so this is when we start to walk in favor with God. This is when we start to fulfill the purposes that God has for our lives. It's not our purpose, it's his purpose through us. Does that make sense? So Haggai chapter 2 verse 1, here's where we take off in today's message. The Bible says in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of um, Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the house and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Then in verse 4, it says, Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Look at somebody tell them, get back to work. Get back to work on what God told you to build. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Get back to work on building your ministry. Get back to work on building your house. Get back to work on building your family. Get back to work on building up your children. Get back to work on building whatever God's told you to build. Get back to work on, he says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came, when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that all the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Would you just close your eyes for just a moment as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for, for doing the work that you've done in our lives. The finished work on the cross. You've set us free from our Egypt for a purpose. And we know that it's your purpose that you're going to use us to build. For You're the builder of this house. You're the builder of every house of worship that declares you as king. And so, Lord, I pray that you speak to every heart and mind in here today. God, that you will help us to get back to work, to what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, everybody said, come on. Can somebody give the Lord a big shout of praise just for like 10 seconds? Come on, 10 seconds. Come on, God's good. Five seconds. Four seconds, come on. God, you're so good. I would think that we can give God a greater shot of praise than we can to any football team on planet Earth, right? In verse 3 of our text this morning, you can find a portion of Scripture which actually is saying something that many of us would gloss over or just read through if we haven't read through the book of Ezra, which again is the front story to what's happening here. Because the children of Israel, the 50,000 remnant that were released from Israel to rebuild the house of the Lord had gotten to work and then they got discouraged and they stopped the work. And then after two years of getting back to work, they celebrated the foundation of the temple of God being established. But I want you to read verse 3 with me. I know that they'll put it up on the screen behind me. But I want you to catch something that, that I caught as I was studying through the book of Haggai when preparing for this message. It says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? What I want you to hear is that even though God was bringing an encouragement through Haggai, what God was pointing to is a 
group of people that were not celebrating what God had accomplished through those that had been set free from Babylonian captivity as they started to rebuild the foundation of the temple of God. This is a, an extravagant work. There's a lot of work when it comes to building a, a, a house as extravagant as King Solomon built. And yet God says that, how does this house compare to the former house? In other words, there were some of you that were here or are old enough to remember the house that King Solomon built God. And now, here we are 70 plus years later, after the Babylonians destroyed the temple of God, God frees them from the Babylonian empire and the king of Persia, Cyrus, releases them to go back, the remnant of Israel, to go back and rebuild the temple of the Lord. And the Israelites had a problem. They had to fight a temptation that I think many of us deal with it throughout our Christianity. And that is the temptation of comparison. Comparison. Because when you think about them and you think about the temple that they were building, you could only imagine why they felt the way that they felt. Because when you look at the, the temple that Solomon built, it was an opulent and extravagant temple of God. In fact, you can read in Ezra chapter 3, if you turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, you can, you can hear the sound of praise and also you can hear the noise of grieving. That's interesting that the Bible would record this as a sound of praise and the noise of grieving. Ezra 3.12 says, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. But why were the people that were older or the heads of the house more, more they were in a time of mourning than they were in a time of celebration? I think that you can see it if you were to go back to 1 Chronicles, because in 1 Chronicles, you'll find out that King David had a passion to build a house for God because he lived in a temple. And God looked at his temple and he goes, how can I live in a palace? I'm sorry, David looked at his palace. He goes, how can I live in a palace while God still lives in a tent? Now, we all know that God doesn't live in a tent. We know that God lives in the, in, 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 in the heavens. And, and, and actually, there's the place called the, the, uh, the third heaven, the heaven of heavenlies. And so it can't even contain the glory or the presence of God. And here David's going to try to build God a house. And then God tells David, you've got too much blood on your hands. He's killed too many people with his bare hands to build God a house where he would be worshipped. And so he puts the contract on King Solomon to build this opulent and extravagant temple. And when you do the research, if you do your Bible study, you'll find out in, in Chronicles 22, you'll just... You'll discover that they used 3,450 metric tons of gold. Metric tons of gold. Like some of you are wearing some really cool gold necklaces that are probably worth at least a couple hundred dollars. Some of you maybe maybe even over a thousand dollars your necklace for that 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 small ounce of gold that you're wearing. Thirty four hundred and fifty metric tons. 3,450 metric tons of gold and 34,500 metric tons of silver in addition to all the other stuff that they would use to build a temple like the cedar uh, wood from Lebanon. So they had to transfer, you know, wood from Lebanon to get, it's just a massive project. And the labor force, the labor force was 153,600. Men and men that, that, that were the labor force to build the original temple. So to give you an idea, the first temple cost, it, like if they were to build the first temple here in Los Angeles, right here in California, here in the beautiful city of Londale, and our, our property would actually 
have enough room to house the actual temple itself, not the inner courts and the outer courts, but the temple by itself, we would have enough room to build it here. But that temple costs, listen to this, $147.7 billion to build by today's metrics. So if you were to take what they spent in gold and in silver alone, we're not even talking about the labor force. We're just talking in gold and silver alone, $147.7 billion it costs to build a temple. The second temple would not be as opulent, would not be as extravagant. The second temple, now mind you, only had 50,000 of the remnant that were released from Babylonian captivity to come back and to rebuild. And not all of them were stonemasons and not all of them were carpenters and not all of them knew um, how to build the temple. Many of them had other traits and yet God had told them to focus on building this temple. It's interesting when you look at the, the difference between the first temple and the second temple. Ezra chapter 2 verse 69. According to their ability they gave to the treasury for this work. 61,000 drachmas of gold and 5,000 minas of silver and 100 priestly garments. Now, 5,000 min, I'm sorry, 61,000 drachmas of gold actually equates to, to 500 kilograms, 500 kilos of gold and 2.9 tons of silver. Which means the second house cost to build, the second temple, in comparison to 147.7 billion, this is one is only costing 32.6 million dollars. You see the difference? You see the difference in how probably the extravagance and the size and what they used to build it wasn't that they didn't desire to have more, to build more is that they just got released from Babylonian captivity. They probably didn't have a whole lot of money to their names. And yet they were allowed to go and rebuild the temple of God. And God reminds them that all the gold in the world belongs to me. All the silver in the world belongs to me. All the treasures in the world belongs to me. And there will come a day when I will bring that back into this place. And the latter house will be more glorious than the former house. Now, in comparison to the workforce, again, they had 50,000 laborers per se. King Solomon had 153,600 laborers to build the first temple. Is it any other wonder why the children of Israel or the older community that looked at what the younger community was doing started to complain, started to groan, started to whine, started to, to look at them and go, you're not doing what we did before. What you're doing is different. What you're doing is smaller. What you're doing is not as good as what we did. Is basically what was going on there. And so what they were building seemed like nothing in comparison to what they had built before. But when we are caught in the unhealthy of comparison, it can cripple your devotion to God. It can, it can cripple your obedience to God. It can it could cripple you hearing from God clearly for what God has for you to do because now you're comparing yourself with what somebody else is doing or what somebody else has and what you don't have. And when you start playing this game, comparison sets unrealistic expectations. That was certainly true for the Israelites in Haggai's time. They were hoping to build a structure on the same scale of splendor, on the same scale of the first temple, but they would sadly be disappointed because they played the comparison game. They didn't have the same resources. They didn't have the same manpower. They didn't have the same skill set to do that. We know that Solomon, King Solomon, was probably the richest man to have ever, even up to date, has ever walked the face of this planet. And how can 50,000 exiles with no king ever compete with that? And here's what I, I want to drive into you today. When you compare yourselves with what somebody else has, with what somebody else is doing, with what their family is like and what your family is like. 
Man, I, I wish my marriage was like their marriage. And I wish my children would obey like their children obey them. And I wish my wife would cook as good as their wife does. And I wish my wife cooked as good as my mom cooks. You, you, you could see how the comparison game could actually get you into trouble. Because when you start thinking like somebody else has it better than you, or somebody else has more than you, and that you're at a place in your life where you deserve more, and you start playing this comparison game, especially when you live in a culture that is heavy in the social media era, right? How many, how many of you have ever caught yourself looking at what other people are doing and have wished, man, I wish I could do that? I think a lot of us have. I think a lot of us have played the dangerous game of comparison. You know which social media posts I love? Can I just tell you real quickly? Social media posts I love. I love, I love the, 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 the social media posts where, where you can see, like, these girls come out and they just, they're raw. What you see is what you get, right? But then all of a sudden they start putting on, like, different layers of makeup. Have you seen this? And then all of a sudden, it finishes like the song drops and then finishes and, and swipe and boom, it's a whole other person. And I'm like, witchcraft, that's witchcraft. I'm convinced that makeup is witchcraft to a degree. Some of you, like newly married couples, some of you girls still haven't taken off your makeup in front of your husband. But anyways, that's another sermon for another time. But have you ever like seen it and you're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. That's like insane. Like the fact that they can go from that to, to that with just some powder and some color and some, you know, some chiseling and whatever, you know, it's like, it's incredible. Blows me away. Right? But most of what we see on social media platforms is fake. It's fake. All you're seeing is other people's highlight reels to their lives. All you're saying, oh, look at my husband, he's so blah, 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 blah. But like when she's not posting that, she's yelling down at her husband. She's shouting down at her man. Like a lot of social, it's just a fake world that we live in. Honestly. What you see on Vogue magazine, what you see on Cosmetal, it's all Photoshop. All of it. All of it is Photoshop. Like you don't even know what you can trust anymore. Like even like with the, like the flying saucer videos. Like you're like, is that real? Like, could that be real? Or is that just the devil? Right? I mean, think about this with me. Because I think that too many people find themselves in a world of heartache because you are not content with who God created you to be. And so that you want to pretend to be like somebody else. Thinking that pretending to be like somebody else, God is going to bless you. Let me just say this to you. God will never pretend who you, God will never bless who you pretend to be. God will bless who you are authentically in Christ. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to know it all. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to have the things that other people have in order to walk in obedience to God. Am I talking to anybody here this morning? Because when you look at this story at Haggai, and, and here's the other thing too. When you, you think about the older generation and the younger generation. You, you've heard the parable that Jesus, and I forgot what portion of scripture it is, but I'm sure it's somewhere in the four gospels where he says that you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Have you heard that, that illustration? What, what, is, what is the point of that illustration? Why can't you put old, new wine in old wineskins? Because they'll what? Because they'll burst. Why will they burst? Because in their process of fermenting, it's expanding. And as it expands, so if you fill up an old wineskin, which is probably an old piece of, 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 it's a material that's made out of an animal that, 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 is, that stretches to a degree. But once it's done stretching, it won't stretch anymore. So if you were to pour out the old wine and pour in new wine into this vessel, the new wine will continue to expand it and it'll burst. It'll break. Right? And so I've heard a lot of preachers and a lot of teachers and say you can't put new wine into old wineskins. So you got to get rid of the old wineskins and you have to go after the new wine. But I'm here to tell you that those preachers were wrong for saying that. 
And I'll tell you why. Because when you do the study on wine, if, if anybody here has ever liked to drink wine, or you've ever been a wine connoisseur, or you pursued, you know, like the different, like, like I can't stand the taste of wine. I just don't like the taste of alcohol in that, in that way. But, but I've seen people, like, they'll pour, you know, wine into a glass, and, and then they'll swirl it around, and they'll let it breathe. Let it breathe. It's, it's not alive. But okay, whatever. They'll swirl it around and they'll let it breathe. And they'll, and they'll just take a little, like a, like a little sip on their tongue. And, and they'll, they'll, you know, and, and it's like, what are you doing? Right? But, but they're tasting and they're looking for something in that wine that would be their own personal preference, I guess. Right? But if you do a study on wine, you'll recognize that the, the old wine is the more refined wine, and it's the more expensive wine, and it's the more smoother wine. Are you tracking with me? And so there is purpose for the old wine, because the old wine may not have the energy to expand, but it does have what the new wine does not have, and that is value, a different value. And that higher value or different value makes way for the young wine to be fermented and to grow itself into becoming what the old wine is. But it's the older wine that's the smoother wine, the more expensive wine, and it still carries a lot of purpose. Hear me clearly. The older generation in our church, God's not done with you yet. Because even though God won't use you to expand anything per se, you carry value. And the value that you carry is wisdom. It's what a lot of our young people don't have. What our young people have is energy and knowledge. But wisdom is how to use that energy and knowledge. And the older generation... Y'all platinum haired and even those of you that have colored over the platinum hair, it's there. I want you to know that God still has a purpose for your life. And in the Bible, though, your purpose is to train the next generation on how they're supposed to grow up and be holy. And to, and to, and, and to how to serve God in the house. The older men are supposed to teach younger men how to be men of courage, men of honor, men of dignity, men of God. And the older women are to teach the younger women how to be men or women that are holy and, and, and present themselves in a holy way before God and before the men of their church. So there's still purpose for the old wine. The new wine, though, has the energy to expand and to grow. And what God is doing at our church is that we're building for the next generation and the next generation after that. But in order for, a, for us to be able to build, we need wisdom to lead the way. And we need the workers to run with the vision of the house who are the next generation of leaders. And so what we're actually doing is we're setting ourselves up for what God has prepared for us. But when we look at ourselves and we compare ourselves to everyone else and what everybody else has and what everybody else is doing, what ends up happening is that we get discouraged. And when we get discouraged on what we see in front of us, we will talk ourselves out of being obedient to God and validate that disobedience with things that we're not happy with. Because comparison... Is a dangerous thing to play with. Comparison means to measure something up against something else. And hear me clearly, you can't measure a miracle against a miracle. A miracle is divinely given to a specific purpose or person or people group. And that is an, an incredible miracle that would take place. But you can't compare miracle to miracle. They're all miracles. Just like you can't compare testimony to testimony. I think that I've got the greatest testimony because it's mine. Honestly, I do. I believe like my testimony is incredible because it was the miracle that God did in my life. But 
your miracle and your testimony should be the best for you and the most incredible for you because it's what God did in your life. And even though what God has done in our lives may look different, might feel different, might even play out different, the reality is, is that you're still a miracle of God that has been created in his image, that has been fearfully and wonderfully created and gifted by the Holy Spirit to fulfill a specific purpose that God has given you to fulfill. But here's the problem. No matter where we are in life, good or bad, we always tend to look around and compare ourselves with what is happening in other lives or in other churches. Why don't we have as much as they have? Why don't we have the opportunities that they have? We both work. How come we can't go on vacation to nice places like they can? Or, or how, come, how, how come I have to work? I, there's a bunch of women in our church that don't work. How come I have to work? <laughs> Why, why can't I stay home with the kids like some of the other women can? How come other people can do this and we can't do that? I wish the talents that they had, I had. I wish my marriage was like their marriage, that I had the family that they have. How come our kids don't listen as good as theirs do? How come this, I mean, it's, it's, it's a stupid game to play. And honestly, it's, it's, it's you listening to the devil. It, honestly, it is. It's, when you start comparing yourself with somebody else, what you're doing is you're listening to the devil. He's telling you to do that. If you want to compare yourself with anybody, here's who I would challenge you to compare yourself to. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Compare yourself to who you were last week. Compare yourself to how, how fervent you were in your Bible study last year to this year. Compare yourself to how much you prayed last year in comparison to this year. Compare yourself to how, how much obedience you're walking in today as you did yesterday. Like if you're going to compare yourself to anybody, compare yourself to yourself, because there's nobody else like you. There's nobody else like you. You're the only you that God has ever created. And you need to find joy in that. You need to understand that, that there is no one like you on this planet. There are no other fingerprints that match your fingerprints. There is no other DNA that matches your DNA. It's uniquely yours because God created you to be unique and different from everybody else. And so you need to rejoice in that and learn to grow in that and be who God created you to be. I decided a long, long time ago, long, long time ago, I wasn't going to be who everybody else wanted me to be. Because in case you didn't know, I, I get thrown in the comparison game a lot. How come pastor um, doesn't wear suits on Sunday and preach? How come pastor won't let his hair grow out? Um, how, can, how come pastor um, doesn't uh, teach a, a expository teaching? How come, how come our church doesn't do the same thing that this church does? And how come we don't do what, what they do? Because we're not them. We're uniquely who we've been called to be. We're Restoration Life. That's who we are. We're not any other church on the planet. That's who we are. And we don't pretend to be like anybody else. In fact, we don't want to be like anybody else because we know the miracle that we are. This is a miracle. This is the house of miracles. And what God has done here is miraculous. And how can I compare it to anything else? So how do I break this game of comparison? Learn to be content with who you are in Christ. As long as you're going for it with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Be content in who you are in Christ. Like I, 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 I've, I've, I've learned to be, con I'm, I'm so thankful for a wife that's learned to be content with a chubby husband. I remember um, we, would, we would go to uh, Chili's after church services. This is before we had our miracle house that we have today. And some of you have seen it. Many of you have not. But it is a miracle home. And uh, I remember when we were renting in Gardena and we would go to Chili's. And we would, we would go and we would hang. And every single time we would come down Manhattan Beach Boulevard, there was this one house that caught my wife's eye. She said, could, could we just stop? Could we just stop in front of the house? I'm like, why? She goes, I just want you to look at it. I just want us to look at it. I was like, okay. And I would stop. She goes, babe, look at that house. It's so pretty. Isn't that nice? I was like, 
I was like, yeah, it is nice. It's not our house. And then other times, you know, we would come down Manhattan Beach Boulevard and my wife would march around the house seven times. I don't know why. And then one time she brought out a shafar and she blew it in front of the house. No, I'm just kidding. She never did any of that. But then, then, but then we would come back to our house in Gardena, our nice little house in Gardena. And I would look at it and I'm like, I hate my house. Like, I just hate it. Like, man, I wish I could give her the house that she's always wanted. And I couldn't. And so I didn't. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I bought this little lake boat and, and then I sold it and then I flipped up to a bigger one and I fixed it and, and, I, and then I sold it and I flipped up to a bigger one and, and I was really proud of the boat that I was able um, to f flip multiple boats into buying and fixing them and doing all that because I love, I love restoring boats and, and playing with them, fixing them, selling them and getting a bigger one. And, and then I take her out on the boat, the, the, the boat of what I think would be like the boat of her dreams and the boat. And we go out and we, and, you know, we would go out in that boat. And she's like, oh, look at that other boat. Look, at, look how nice that other boat is. And I was like, man, I hate this boat. I hate, I hate this boat. And, it, and it's crazy what comparison will do. It, it, it really is. It really is. Like even now when we go out on the lake, and, and, and honestly, God blessed us to be able to, to get this, 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 this beautiful boat. And, and, and now we're on the lake, and, and, and I'm like, my chest is kind of pumped out a little bit. And she's like, oh, look at all those other boats. I go, would you stop? Don't do that when I'm in the boat. You're hurting her. You're hurting her. Crazy enough, God gave us a house much like the one that she was looking at as a miracle to build from the ground up. But can I tell you why, though? Can I, can I honestly tell you why I think God did that for us? Because we decided that we were going to build his house first. And because we built his house first, God gave us the desire of our, her heart, <laughs> our heart, and God gave us a beautiful home to live in. But it didn't come without being obedient. It didn't come without being sacrificial. It didn't come without being content. In fact, every single time I pull up to the house that we live in now, I'm sitting there. I'm like going, God, you're so good. I don't deserve any of this. Honestly, I was content in the little house in, in Gardena until, you know, she compared it to something else. But anyways, don't ever allow yourselves to compare your life with somebody else's life. Don't allow yourself to compare your gifting with somebody else's gifting. Don't allow yourself to compare your marriage with somebody else's marriage. Maybe the reason why their marriage seems better than yours is because they put more work into theirs. And it's time for you to put some more work into yours. Maybe the reason why some people are able to go on some of these extravagant vacations is because they've been better stewards over their finances than you have. Like, like figure out the whys, but don't compare yourself to other people. It'll destroy you. It'll literally destroy you. And God wasn't okay with the children of Israel comparing the former to the latter. In fact, God begins to prophesy. And I wish I had more time to unpack all these other stories of all these other people that compared themselves. But honestly, I, I, can, I can sit here and tell you story after story. I, can, I, 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 I might even tell you a little bit about King Saul who was jealous of King David and compared himself to King David because the children of Israel started singing songs like, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. And so when Saul heard that, he got jealous. And he started to have this thing against young David, who was an armor bearer to him, who was a warrior in his court. And yet Saul didn't see that, and Saul compared himself to him and found jealousy within his heart. And what, what ends up happening with Saul is that King Saul's kingdom is ripped away from him, and he dies in shame. And then young David rises up and takes over the kingdom. We, we could talk about that story. We could talk to you about 12 spies, 10 of who didn't see what God saw. Hear me clearly. 10 spies who didn't see what God saw. What they saw is that there were giants in the land and they compared themselves to those giants and they said that we're like grasshoppers in comparison to the people that are in them. 
but there were two spies by the name of Joshua and Caleb that said, no, 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 we could take the land. It's flowing with milk and honey. We can do this. Man, you should see the grapes. They're the sides of, of your head and pomegranates and vineyards and, and all this other stuff. And yet everybody else decided to go with the pessimism instead of the optimism or the faith, the faithless instead of the faithful. Because they played the comparison game. About Joseph and his brothers. Joseph said, everybody's going to bow down to me. Joseph's brothers saw that and probably compared themselves to Joseph. And said, nah, you're, you're like the youngest, you know, punk kid in our family who's the favorite. Let's kill him. <laughs> because of comparison. And you know what they set out to do. They threw him in a pit. They sold him off into slavery. And they ended up bowing down to Joseph. Because what they meant for evil, God turned it around for the good. How about Gideon? Can I just, Gideon? Do you know the story of Gideon? Gideon, when God called him, when the angel of the Lord spoke to him, he looked at himself as he wasn't enough. There's no way that he was going to be able to lead the children of Israel into a fight against the, the armies or the enemies against them. And so Gideon saw himself as the least of the least in comparison to everybody else. But you know what? God called him a mighty man of valor. A mighty warrior. Is it possible? Can I just say this to the men in the church? Is it possible that you don't see the mighty warrior that's in you because you're still comparing yourself to the other people? Are you listening when God speaks or are you listening to when Satan speaks? Because I'm here to encourage you today. Be who you are in Christ. Allow the giftings that God has placed in you to be used for his purpose in this house. Stop comparing yourself to everybody else and to every other church and to every other ministry. Be who you are and learn how to be content with who you are in Christ. And if you're not happy about who you are in Christ, then change the things that you're not happy about. Don't complain about him. Don't, 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 don't talk yourself into disobedience, but do what God has called you and led you to do. All right, I'm going to bring this so close. Colossians 3.23 says this. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. Galatians 1.10, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Like whose approval are you seeking? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying, still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Because how many know, as Christians, you're never going to be able to please anybody. As non-Christians, you're never going to be able to please anybody either. And so Paul's basically saying, listen, learn how to be content with who you are and where you are. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. In other words, the children of it, uh, uh, the, the Corinthian people were comparing themselves with other, other people. And he goes, why are you comparing yourselves with people that are basically stuck up and compare themselves to one another, like to the other people that they love hanging with? Stop comparing yourself to all those people and start being content in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. In Haggai 2.9, the word of the Lord would come through the prophet Haggai and finish by saying, the future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And in this place I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. Here's my prayer for you today. That if you compare yourself with anyone, that you will compare yourself with who you were last year. So that you can become better this year. Here's the other thing that I would say to you. Learn to be content with who you are. But not to stay where you are. But to where you are right now. Like I'm content in my marriage and in my family and in my children. I got to welcome a brand new baby boy a couple days ago. Little white, blue-eyed baby boy, six pound, one ounce. Theodore Stone Baskin. And I look at my life and I'm like, man, God, you're, you're so good. Now, I know that, that God is still going to do more. 
and that more is coming. But you know what? I'm enjoying the ride. I'm enjoying the ride. And guess what? We are slowing down to smell the roses. And we are enjoying our marriage. We are enjoying being empty nesters. And we are enjoying the life that we are living right now. And we still know that God's not done using us yet. We know there are, there are greater things that God is going to do in us and through us and through all of you as well. But we're content. And we're finding the joy in serving God right where we're at. Even when times get difficult, there's joy. Even, even when things look impossible, there's joy. Even when I don't see what everybody else sees, there's joy. Why? Because I do it as unto the Lord. I work as unto the Lord, not as unto man. Amen? Let's bow our head and close our eyes today. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your love and your mercy over all of our lives. There's no way any of us would ever be here without the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. Thank you. Thank you so much for loving the whosoevers of this world and leading us into a place of fulfillment and purpose in Christ. Now I pray for everyone in this room, God, that they would stop comparing themselves to other people, to other families, to other leaders, to other churches. Stop comparison. Stop the comparison game. And God, that they would learn to be content in you. Whether they have a lot or they have a little. Whether they're blessed or not so blessed. Whether they, they, they have what they've always wanted or they don't have what they've always wanted. As long as we have you in our lives, we are fulfilled. As long as we have your grace working in and through our, our lives, God will do whatever you called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, stand to your feet as we sing a song of worship. Yo